So Genesis chapter 19, verse 23. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night. And the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. You may be seated. Let's pray to the Lord for his help. Lord, we trust you that in your sovereign wisdom, you have kept this for us. Your spirit has written this through your servant Moses, and you, by your providence, have preserved this all the way to this day so that we could read it and be pointed to Christ. So Lord, enlighten us by your spirit. Give us understanding. Sanctify us in Christ. Give us assurance in Christ. And help us to trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. So the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Corinthian church, tells them about Israel's rebellion in the wilderness. He says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11. He says to the church, Now these things, speaking of Israel in the wilderness, these things happen to them as an example. Then look what he says. Verse 11. But they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone thinks that he stands, take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overcome you, you and me, and the Corinthians. No temptation has overcome you that is not common to everyone, to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide you the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So there are two truths here in 1 Corinthians that I want us to see before we get back to Genesis. Two truths embedded here in Paul's teaching. The first is that these stories from the Old Testament have been written down for our instruction. When the Holy Spirit led Moses to record this episode of Lot's life, 
that we're reading about here in Genesis 19, the Holy Spirit did that with the church in mind. The Spirit wrote in such a way that you and me, in reading this, would have the sin of our hearts exposed so that we would turn to Christ for forgiveness and cover atonement and then grow in sanctification. The second truth is that you are not as strong as you think you are. When Paul says, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall, that's a warning. That's a warning. He's saying to the church, lower your estimation of yourself. I think he's saying that because because we have a tendency when we read these Old Testament stories, especially the bizarre and gross ones, we have a tendency to think and to say, what, say it with me, that would never happen to me, (laughs) right? And while it's true that looking back and longing to go back into a city that is literally burning down with fiery rain, That might not be something that tempts you. And while it's true that moving into a cave might not seem reasonable to you. And though incest is likely not on your short list of temptations, Paul says nothing has overcome you except what is common to man. And what he means is that you and me are susceptible to the same secret, unseen sins of the heart that led to these outwardly ugly sins that Lot and his wife and his daughters all fell into. The same matters of the heart, the same temptations in your life, they might not work themselves out like Lot's pitiful family, but our hearts are just as filthy. So what I want to do this morning is bring Lot's family back from the past, back out of Genesis 19, back out of the cave, and bring them into the church with us this morning, and sit them in the pew next to you. And I want you to look at them and say, hopefully by the end of this study, to be able, I want you to be able to say, I'm just like you, I think just like you. And I'm tempted just as you are. And then to look to the Lord and say, Lord, have mercy on me. Amen? Help me. And this is not that far-fetched. It will not be that difficult of a task for us. Because one of the issues, the primary issue that I think that Lot and his family struggled with the most is fear. And one of the issues that we struggle with the most, is fear. Fear in itself is not necessarily evil. It's an emotion, right? So emotions in themselves, like happiness and sadness, anger, the emotion itself is not sinful. Fear is an emotion. It's good to have a healthy fear of fire, right? Good to have a healthy fear of guns and rattlesnakes and mountain lions. Fear helps you Handle those dangerous matters, those dangerous things, appropriately. That's that's good. God gave that to you to preserve your life. But our fears must be rightly ordered. All right, so we're taking notes today. This This is the headline. Our fears must be rightly ordered. We are meant to fear God first. That is, we are to recognize, first of all, God holds our lives in his hands And that at the same time that his judgment toward our sin has been placed upon Christ. So we fear God because of his power and his authority, but we're not afraid of God because we know his love. We've been adopted into his family. We're his children. And the right fear of God, as our primary fear, rightly orders the rest of our lives. That's why the Wisdom of the scriptures say our fear of God leads us to wisdom. The right fear of God leads us to trust the Lord first 
from which we are then oriented to wisdom, and through wisdom we order the, the rest of our lives with respect to God. So just to, just to put it out there, in our work, for instance, if fear of God is first, in our work we seek to glorify God, and through our work the Lord provides us food so that we can live. We are married or single for the glory of God. And through our marriage or through our singleness, we are content in the Lord. If we're married and have kids, we raise them up for God's glory. We steward our time for the glory of God and our recreation for the glory of God and our money and our rest, all for the glory of God from where all of our fears are rightly ordered. But when our fears are disordered, when we fear something that is not God, more than we fear God, or when we are afraid of God, well, then our lives become disordered. Our work becomes obsessive because it is for survival rather than God's glory. Our marriages become troubled because we're seeking satisfaction in our spouse rather than the Lord. Our child rearing becomes anxiety producing. Our singleness becomes loneliness. Our recreation is squandered. Our money becomes an idol, and our rest disappears altogether. These are the messes that are brought about in our lives because of disordered fears, and these are the messes that are brought about in Lot's families, Lot's life, right? So think of Lot's wife. Lot's wife feared the loss of material goods more than she feared the Lord, Lot was afraid of God's judgment. And we're going to study each of these points. And Lot's daughters feared life without children. Three fears, three sources of disorder. Each of these disordered fears leads to devastation. So this morning as we say goodbye to Lot, this is our last time that we'll see Lot. This is the last we hear of him. I want us to use this time to invite the Spirit to shine his light into our hearts and root out our disordered fears and turn us to Christ. So it's been a couple weeks since we've been in Genesis. So let's review the context of where we are here in Genesis 19. If you're, if you're visiting or you didn't hear the rest of the Genesis 19 sermon, uh, I'll catch you up quickly. Um, Lot and his wife and his two daughters have been pulled out of Sodom. By the strong hand of God. The Lord has just rescued them. He's redeemed them from fiery judgment. He's shown love and mercy to them in a way that only God can do. And that's important. All right, that, that framing for this is important because I'm going to come back to that reality of redemption again and again and again throughout our study. God's mercy toward us should affect our fears. It should have affected Lot's fears and his wife's fears and his daughter's fears. So the Lord's messengers have taken Lot and his family by the hand. He's pulled them out of the city, out of the city, out through the gates, and he's told them, run for the hills. Lot instead negotiated safe passage to a little town called, that get the name Zoar. And as we read just this morning, the sun rises up over the horizon, and in broad daylight, the Lord brings his judgment. That means essentially what we're to see there is that God isn't hiding his judgment. His face is toward the cities of the valley when he does this. So there's no denying that it is the Lord himself who has brought this judgment. That's why it says the sun rises. And we'll get to that in a little bit later in Isaiah. Well, a rightly ordered fear obeys God, receives the good news of his rescue, and runs from the outpouring of his wrath, right? So he, he pulls them out of the city, and he says, run. And a rightly ordered fear says, okay, I'm going to run. There's nothing in all of creation that is to be feared more than what is happening here. Run, do not hesitate, do not look back. There's nothing in Sodom for you anymore. The Lord, being rich in mercy, has spared your life. Be thankful, be obedient, trust his instruction, and get out of Sodom. That's kind of where we left off. But then I didn't get in our last sermon on this to Lot's wife. Lot's wife can't do it, can't she? 
She can't quite go. Look at verse 26. Genesis 9, so flick back to Genesis 19. Genesis 19, 26. But Lot's wife behind him, that means she's, uh, Lot is running ahead. He's with his daughters and Lot's wife is dragging her feet. She's behind him. She looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Now Genesis does not specify exactly how this transformation took, took place. Doesn't give us the, the chemistry of it. Uh, Deuteronomy, though, gives us a clue. Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 23, if you want to write it in your notes, um, that, points, that verse in Deuteronomy 29 points back to this event as a warning. And in Deuteronomy, Moses, the same writer, explains that when the Lord rained the fire and brimstone from heaven on Sodom, he also sent salt so that nothing could grow in that place ever again. So our, our passage uh, alludes something to this effect when it says back in 19, verse 25, God overthrew those cities and their inhabitants and what grew on the ground. So he burned it all with fire and then he sterilized it with salt so that it would forever be wasteland. And so that salt there has something to do with what happens to Lot's wife. The wrongly ordered fears of Lot's wife caused her to get caught up in the fire and the salt raining down. And so by the providence of God, she stood thereafter as a salt statue in memoriam for all Israel to see whenever they went near the Dead Sea Valley. And that was all we get from the Pentateuch, from the first five books of the Bible. But Jesus teaches us that she's a lesson for us too. Jesus tells us Remember Lot's wife. And it's actually through Jesus' words rather than Moses's that tells us more about what's happening in Lot's wife's mind and her heart when she was looking back. She certainly wasn't looking back admiring the wonder of the fire, was she? Jesus teaches us that Lot's wife feared life without her belongings. She feared life without the comforts of Sodom, but she didn't rightly fear the Lord. Turn with me to Luke 17. Let me show you what Jesus teaches us here. So Luke chapter 17, this is in the second half of your Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke. Luke chapter 17, verse 28 Jesus teaching about the, the time when the Son of Man will, will be revealed. He says this, Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot. All right, so here's Lot again. They, the people of Sodom, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. So they're going about their lives. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop, so the top of the house, with his goods in the house, not come down into the house and take his goods away. Likewise, let the one who is in the field, so out working in the field, not turn back to go back into the city and get their stuff, right? And then Jesus says, verse 32, remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. So Jesus is teaching us that, that Lot's wife is the one who goes back into her house to get her goods instead of running for the hills. Or, or, or Lot's wife is the one who's in the field, working out in the field, and goes back home to get her things instead of running for the hills. And it is in that context that the Lord says, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. And that seems counterintuitive to us, doesn't it? Because isn't the one who runs for the hills seeking to preserve his life from the coming judgment? No, what Jesus is saying, rather the one who believes that life depends on their belongings. That's the one who is seeking to preserve their life. 
It's that sense of comfort. It's that sense of control that we get when we have our accumulated belongings. If I have my money, if I have my belongings, then I can control my destiny. I can preserve my life. Lot's wife is standing somewhere not too very far from the Sodom city gates. Her husband has run on, her daughters have run on, and she's looking back at the city, contemplating if she has enough time to go back in and get her belongings because she fears life without her things more than she fears God. In other words, she trusts herself and what she can do to preserve her own life more than she trusts the Lord and what he can do for her. Even though the Lord's strong hand has just rescued her from judgment. This is very much like Israel, isn't it? Having been rescued from Egypt in the Exodus, standing at the edge of the wilderness, looking back to Egypt saying, I miss Egypt. I miss the meat and the bread and the garlic and the leeks. Why are they saying that? Because they can't imagine life in the wilderness dependent on God and the daily manna that he will give. All they know is the life that they had when they were in slavery and bondage to Pharaoh. Pharaoh who hated them, fed them. But they don't trust God who loves them to provide for them. And so it is with us. We've been redeemed from our slavery to sin. Our God, according to the riches of his mercy, has redeemed us. He's rescued us from the domain of darkness. And now as our adoptive father, he promises to clothe us as the flowers of the field are clothed. He he promises to feed us as the sparrows are fed. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not give us graciously all things? But even though it is... God that we know takes care of us, we we know it compartmentally, we still long for the security and the comfort that the world provides. It's not that we don't love God. That's not it. We love God. We'll sing to him. We'll come to church. We'll pray to him for stuff we think he can handle. We'll even read the Bible to make him happy. But we don't trust him. We don't trust him. We think too little of him. Sometimes we think of, we've been doing a building project at our house, and and sometimes we think of God as if he is an elderly neighbor from down the street offering to help us with a big project. Like you're building a house, and he's that old man who comes shuffling down the street with his walker, rolling his oxygen tank behind him, takes a puff and says, why don't you sit over there and I'll build your house for you. And we say, ah, thank you, mister. I'll handle this. We don't believe he's able to care for us, to protect us, to provide for us. But the reality is this. The reality is we are toddlers with Fisher-Price plastic hammers. And that little plastic toy where you have to figure out which shape goes into which hole And we're standing there by the driveway sucking on our juice box and we're trying to beat the square into the circle and our, with our little hammer, right? Over and over again, it won't go in. And God, our Father, owns the land. He's standing there. He's, had, he's purchased all the goods to build the house. He has the strength. He has the, the power. He has the proper tools to build the house. He's cleared the land. He's drawn out the plans. And he says, do you trust me to build this for you? And we say, oh, thank you. I can do this with my plastic hammer. But can you help me get the square out of the circle? I got it stuck again, (laughs) right? For some odd reason, this keeps happening to me. You see the absurdity? Lot's wife doesn't believe the Lord will provide for her in that unknown. And so she's, she's looking back with longing at the security that she believes she provided for herself in Sodom. She wants to go back and get her plastic hammer. She, she sought to preserve her own life by her strength, and the Lord took everything away. 
And he did that for you. He did that to teach the church to seek first the kingdom of God and all these other things will be added to you. So remember Lot's wife, as Jesus tells us. Whoever seeks to preserve his life by his own strength, by her own power, with her own stuff, will lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it. Secondly, remember Lot. Remember Lot. In our previous episode in Sodom, when Lot was being dragged out of the city by the angels, he was commanded, run for the hills. But he begged the angels, let him run to Zoar instead. That little city at the edge of the valley. And remember they said, okay, but go quickly. And once Lot was in Zoar, the Lord mercifully spared that city because the Lord is just and he would not destroy the righteous with the wicked. But this is also what Abraham had prayed for, if you remember. Abraham prayed according to the character and the will of God and his prayer was answered. Lot was spared and that place, that wicked place that Lot was in was also spared. Well, apparently what happened when Lot moved to Zoar, even though he was living there by the mercy of God, Lot hated it there. He was constantly afraid. There's that fear again. Look at verse 30. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. Now what, what is he afraid of in Zoar? God said he could go there. And in Zoar, he has all of the provisions that he enjoyed in Sodom, all of the, 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 the conveniences of city life. What's he afraid of? I think he's afraid of the judgment of God. And let me tell you why I think he's afraid of the judgment of God. First of all, notice that when he, where he goes, notice where he goes when he leaves Zoar. Goes from Zoar to the hills. The hills are that place where God originally had commanded him to go. So when Lot moved into the city of Zoar, he found out that it was just like Sodom. And, and I think he was reminded as he's there looking at the wickedness around him, he's reminded of why God had brought judgment upon those cities of the valley to begin with. And so living there, he can't, he can't be comfortable, can he? He fears God is going to bring judgment in this city as well. You can imagine him waking up every night when he smells the, the, the candle go out. He smells the smoke. He wakes up terrified. Every time he sees a thunderstorm, the flash of lightning, he's, he's living in terror of God's judgment. And so he decides, I better go to the hills as God commanded me. God said that place would be safe. I'm going to go there. Now, what he ought to have done when he left Zoar, when he moved to the hills, is to move in with Uncle Abraham. That's what he ought to have done. Abraham as, as the text reminds us, is overlooking this. He's not very far away. He's just up above the valley living in the peaceful oak grove. And, and life could be good there. Living in the promises of God and trusting in God with Uncle Abraham. But notice where in the hills Lot moves to instead. He goes to where? A cave. A cave? Why? This is the first cave dweller that we've seen in the Bible, but it will not be the last. Caves throughout the Bible come up in three different scenarios, all right? Caves are the places of tombs. We're going to see that in just a couple chapters. Caves are the place of refuge from enemies. He's David hid in a cave. Saul hid in a cave. Caves are a place to hide, thirdly, from the judgment of God. So Lot's not dead, so he's not being buried. This isn't a tomb. There aren't any enemies mentioned, so I don't think he's hiding from any enemies. But God's judgment is fresh in this story, isn't it? God's judgment is, is fresh on Lot's mind. So I believe that Lot is willing to obey God, like the man who buried his talents in Jesus' parable, willingly obeyed his master. But Lot doesn't trust God to protect him, like that man who buried his talents did not trust God. Lot still believes in the danger of coming judgment. 
The last judgment he saw in his memory was fire from heaven. So Lot believes that a cave in the rocks should be a good place to protect him from that. Listen to what Isaiah says about such a judgment, coming judgment of God. Isaiah chapter 2. And I believe Isaiah is, is referencing, alluding back to this episode. Isaiah chapter 2 verse 20. In that day, this is a future judgment, in that day mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold. So they will realize that none of those things were important, which they made for themselves to worship. They will toss them to the moles and to the bats. And this is what they will do. They will enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. So the Lord rising to terrify the earth, that is an allusion to the sun rising over Sodom and the Lord bringing judgment. And hiding in the caves from that judgment, I believe, is an allusion to Lot's cave dwelling here in our passage. Righteous Lot, rescued from the judgment of Sodom by the mercy of God, fears God's judgment will come again. So he moves into a cave to protect himself. Now granted, Lot's been through an ordeal, hasn't he? We need to remember he's human. He's not a heroic storybook character. He's just like us. He's flesh and blood. He's weak and frail. So try to imagine how you might be if you just lost your entire living, your, your business, your home, your sons-in-law, and then your, and your wife all in about 20 minutes. It's understandable that Lot has been through some trauma and he's feeling anxious. It's understandable. But again, just as with Lot's wife, remember also, Lot has just been redeemed by God. So we don't just think of the, the trauma, right? We think of the rescue, the redemption. He's been rescued by God. Out of all the thousands of people in the cities of the valley, the Lord has shown mercy to Lot's family alone and has sent him messengers, God's own messengers to rescue him. But Lot's fear here shows us that he has forgotten, just like his wife, he has forgotten the mercy of God. Rather than trusting that God will protect him, he believes God is going to bring judgment on him. And so he chooses to protect himself from the judgment of God by living in a cave. This is another disordered fear. This is not the fear of God that leads man to wisdom and the worship of God. This is the dread of God that leads a man to distrust God. How did this happen? How did, how did, remember what Peter calls this man, righteous Lot. How did righteous Lot come to dread the Lord so that he would rather live in a cave than with Abraham, the chosen one of God? There's something I, there's something that, that happens to us when we contemplate the judgment of God. Let me, let me tell you how John Bunyan puts it. John Bunyan says, For if God shall come to you indeed and visit you with the forgiveness of sins, that visit removes the guilt but increases the sense of your filth. And the sense of this that God has forgiven you, a filthy sinner, will lead you to both rejoice and tremble. Oh, the blessed confusion that will then cover your face. Bunyan is saying that when we, by the visitation of the Holy Spirit to us, when we hear the gospel and we're born again and we see the judgment of God at the cross for what it is, when we contemplate Christ's death and realize that in Christ's death and atoning work for our sins, we're forgiven, something happens to us in our inner being. We rejoice because of the forgiveness that God has given us. But we tremble because we have become more aware of our own sin, our own filth. We realize fully and completely we don't deserve God's mercy. When we see Christ on the cross, we think, that should be me. The blessed confusion of rejoicing and trembling. Fearful joy is the 
Christian response to the cross of Christ. And like our observance of God's wrath at the cross, Lot has seen the judgment of God at Sodom. And so having seen the judgment of God, Lot has become more aware of the wickedness of his own sin. He's become more aware of the the majesty of God's holiness and the depth of his justice and the power of his wrath towards sin. And so Lot is trembling. But why is he not rejoicing? Why is he only afraid? Because there's a difference between the mercy that Lot was shown and the mercy that you've been shown if you're in Christ. You see, the mercy that Lot was shown was a sparing mercy. Lot's life was spared because of the mercy of God. But Lot had no guarantee given to him that it would be spared again. After all, remember Lot's wife. Her life was spared until it wasn't. And so Lot now is is almost spiritually worse off than he was in Sodom. He knows now his sin all the more, and he knows the wrath of God all the more, and he's terrified with a terror like he's never known before. He dreads the wrath of God, and so he hides in a cave. But you, Christian brothers and sisters, you have not only been shown a sparing mercy, you have been shown a substitutionary mercy. God did not simply forgive you and spare your life from one event of his holy justice. If your identity and your hope is in Christ, God declares you forgiven from all holy justice because his wrath towards sin has been poured out on Christ once for all. So your sin has been laid on Christ and his righteousness has been imputed to you. That's a lot. Lot's sins had not been laid on the people of Sodom and the other cities of the valley. Those people were paying for their own sins. Lot still carried his sin and his guilt with him. It has not been atoned for yet. And though he might know of and might be hoping in a Messiah who will come one day, And I think he is. That one day to him seems a long, long way off because he can still smell the sulfur from Sodom and he can still see his wife's salty statue. And that reality leads Lot to dread God. Not to love God the way that the Spirit and the cross lead us to love God, Lot is not led to worship God or to be in awe of him the way that the love of Christ leads you and me. The wrath of God that Lot saw with his own eyes and the burning awareness of his sin that he became conscious of led him to tremble before God. And so he went to the cave to live there, a hiding place from the wrath of God. Some of you are living like Lot. Even now, dreading God, afraid of God, you're living as if the cross of Christ spared you once, but at any moment, God could catch up with you, find out, find you out for who you really are, a disgusting sinner. And so, like Lot, you're hiding, maybe not in a cave. But it's something, something earthly, something artificial that you believe can protect you from God's anger. Most of the time, this man-made cave is some type of facade that you've built. You hide your secret sin inside of your cave of good behavior or your hard work or your service so that you, you appear on the outside strong and resilient like a stone fortress. We, we, we convince ourselves that our external goodness, our external strength will withstand the judgment of God towards our internal wickedness. 
If that's you, if you are afraid of being found out by God, listen to the gospel from Romans 5.8. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The Lord knows your innermost thoughts. He knows your temptations. He knows your actions. He knows your secret sins. And in his love for you, he sent his son to die for you. That's an operative word, for you. With Christ's death for you, friend, his death is substituted for you. You are freed from condemnation. So when you look at the cross, and you are, by the grace of God, made more aware of your own sinfulness, your own wickedness, you should tremble. But you should also freely and truly rejoice. There's no coming judgment for you. You don't need an earthly cave if you've been hidden in the rock of ages. Amen? Well, it's in the context of this makeshift hiding place that we meet Lot's nameless daughters. The characters that disturb us the most. The two of these four that we least want sitting in the pew beside us. Before we examine their fears with them, I want you to think about what has shaped them, okay? To do this, we have to think back to chapter 13, at the beginning of Lot's story, when Lot chose to live in Sodom. He made that choice. Because of their father's desire to live in a place where worldly wealth was more abundant and where the conveniences of city life were more prevalent, these young women have been brought up in and around Sodom. The Sodomite way of thinking has, at the very least, influenced their way of thinking. They, they, they may have been brought up in the home, taught in their home that Yahweh is creator, the Lord is creator, he's Lord over all, that he will one day bring relief from the fall. Just the same way that you might have taught your children those ideas. But these women have at the same time, same time that they're being taught these, 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 these truths, they've watched mom and dad, they've watched their father and mother live. And through their example, they have been taught that the world, the world is where we get a tangible sense of security, something you can touch, something you'd feel, something that you know protects you, not the Lord. And that to get ahead in the world, they've also been taught to get ahead in the world, sometimes you've got to fend for yourself and do whatever works. They've been brought up drinking from the shallow, murky well of pragmatism. They've been taught by their father that the ends justify the means. Are you with me? The ends justify the means has been what they've been taught. Remember also that these young ladies have experienced tragedy. Their home has been destroyed. They've lost their fiancés. They've lost the hope of marriage and children. Their mother is dead. So they've lost that, that, that maternal voice that says, all is not lost, it's going to be okay. So it's no wonder that these two women have begun to think catastrophically. And it's no wonder that in their catastrophic thinking that they believe their entire world has ended and all hope is lost. There are no men in the entire land for us is what they're thinking. We'll never get married. I'll never have children. Look what they say in verse 31. And the firstborn said to the younger, our father's old, and here it is, there is not a man on earth to come into us. After the manner of all, they're saying there's not a man in all the earth to marry us. And they're thinking, they're feeling sorry for themselves here, Everyone else in all of history has had a husband. And so, all those other women in all of history, they were able to have children. They were able to live that tranquil life, rocking their babies, nursing their babies, making food for the babies, smelling that sweet baby smell, raising them up, teaching them to sing, watching them learn to walk, listening to them laugh. 
Everyone else in all of history, in all the manner of the world, everyone else has had this privilege. But there's no possible way that we will. You see how they're thinking? A catastrophic way of thinking? You thought that way before? They have this end in mind. This, you could call it an idol. They have this end in mind. It's the only way that they can imagine life. The way that they had imagined life. The way that they've seen everyone else live life. And that's all they can think of. They, and they fear, here's the fear, they fear a life that would be different than their plans. And in their fears, they're forgetting what mom forgot and they're forgetting what dad forgot. That the Lord has shown them love, the Lord has shown them mercy, and he's redeemed them from judgment. Are you starting to see that repeated theme in Genesis? Just how common it is to be redeemed and to forget that you've been redeemed? To be saved and to forget that you've been saved? If the reality of your redemption defines you, if your identity is in Christ, your life will go well. All these other things will be added unto you. If you, however, forget that God has saved you, as Lot's family forgot, then you will set out to provide for yourself those blessings that you think you need, and you will end up as they did. These daughters... Feared being alone. And so they do whatever it takes, including sin. And they know this is sin. This is not, oh, they didn't know. They didn't know any better. Even, even the Babylonian laws that have been passed down that we've seen recorded would forbid this explicitly. So they know that what they're doing is, is sinful, that it is wrong. This is not God's design. But they will do it to find worldly security. Because why? Worldly security is more important to them than the fear of God. They believe it is up to them to solve their problem, that God's not going to take care of them, even though he just did, he's not going to take care of them in the future. And that deadly combination of fearfulness plus pragmatism gets you to verse 32. You and me are just as prone to fearfulness plus pragmatism. So when we read verse 32, maybe, I'm sure you haven't done this before, but you've done a lot that is motivated by fearfulness and pragmatism. So let's look at verse 32. Here's what the older says to the younger. Come, let us make our father drink wine. Get him drunk. We'll lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. And so this is what they do. The older first and then the younger. And, and, and I think all of us, most of us here, are, are angry with Lot for his part in this. And, and you should be. That's right. It's right to be angry for allowing to, with Lot for allowing this to happen, for raising his daughters like this. But Moses, Moses our, our author, he seems to be making the point intentionally that Lot was completely unaware of what was happening to him. And he's not doing that to remove Lot's culpability but to drive home the point of what's happening. The fearfulness and the lack of trust in the Lord and the pragmatism led these daughters to do the unthinkable. Moses wants us to see, the Spirit wants us to see the motivation in their hearts. Not necessarily the, the disgustingness of the outcome, but the motivation in the hearts, the motivation that you have and that I have when we're led by fear and pragmatism and not the fear of the Lord. Well, in the mysteries of God's providence, these two women are successful in their scheming. They are given the blessing of children through their sinful actions. And from these two children would come two nations, the Moabites and the Ammonites, two tribes that would forever present problems for Israel, forever. The Moabites and the Ammonites would lead Israel into moral battles of idolatry. The Moabites and the Ammonites would lead uh, Israel into sexual sin, not surprisingly. There would be, 
there will be military battles where thousands will die on, on both sides. And, and so when I'm reading this, I think, why, God, why would you allow this to happen? Why did, why did God allow these women to conceive in their sin? He could have saved Israel a lot of trouble if he would have just not allowed them to have children. He could have. Right? How many times, in, just in Genesis, does God keep a woman from conceiving? That's like part of the story. That's, that's Genesis. That's the story. He kept Sarah from conceiving for decades. To teach us, children come from the Lord. That's what he's been teaching us. Children come from the Lord. They're a blessing from God. We have certainly learned that in Genesis, and we'll continue to, to learn that. But here's the thing. God in his providence, look what he's doing here. In his providence, he takes the fears of Lot that sent him into the cave and the sinful, fearful scheming of his daughters that led them to do the unthinkable. And he brings forth two sons. And eventually, from the tribes of those two sons, the Moabites and the Ammonites, the Lord will bring forth two daughters. Ruth, the Moabite, and Naama, the Ammonite. Ruth, of course, will marry Boaz, and they'll have a great-grandson named David. David, through his own wickedness, would bring forth a son named Solomon. And Solomon, through his own wickedness, would marry Naama the Ammonite. And from that union would come Rehoboam, the idolatrous king of Judah. And here's what happens. It is this family lineage through which God makes the crooked and scheming and fearful and doubting and sinful path straight. Because this is the family of Jesus, our Savior. Were it not for the sins of these two young ladies and the drunkenness of their father, you and I would not be calling upon the name of Jesus as our Savior. Jesus, the one who, whose delight is in the fear of the Lord. So, trust the Lord, having received salvation from him. Right? That's, that's certainly the lesson that these, this family teaches us. Trust him. Do not fear. The most frequent command in all of Scripture, do not fear. Trust the Lord, having received the salvation from him, but also trust that no matter how great a mess you have made, it's not as big as this one. No matter how greatly you have sinned, it is not beyond God's sovereign care to redeem that too. So now, now that you know that Lot and his wife and his daughters are just like you and me, let's thank the Lord for the testimony to his greatness that their story reveals to us. If he can redeem their story... And he did. He can redeem your story. So let us rejoice in his mercy and tremble that it's necessary. Amen? Let's pray.